Welcome back to the Full Count with Bruce Dolbigan. I'm Bruce Dolbigan, and this is where curiosity leads me. If you enjoy these podcasts, do go to iTunes, look under Not the Public Podcast, and subscribe. We're also available on a number of your other favorite platforms and at my website, notthepublicbroadcaster.com. The never-ending saga of the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline has reached a crucial point. Recently, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government has said it will indemnify the builders of the pipeline for any losses occurred in completing the project, which has so far met all its regulatory and environmental demands. Meanwhile, the Alberta legislature has passed legislation that will allow for it to turn off the taps on oil to the West Coast if the BC-NDP-Green coalition continues to delay the project to carry product from the oil sands to the ports of the coast. BC Premier Mike Horgan, meanwhile, says his province is examining all of its options, even as the polling shows that the project is approved by a majority of his constituents. Finally, former U.S. Vice President Al Gore, the high priest of global warming propaganda, is inserting himself into the Canadian business with his usual apocalyptic predictions of the earth burning to a crisp. To gain some perspective on all this, I'm pleased to welcome back to the full count Brett Wilson, Canadian investment banker, businessman, investor, philanthropist, and the president of the Al Gore fan club. Uh, okay, maybe not. <laughs> welcome back. Always a pleasure, Bruce. First, give me your thoughts on the Fed's decision to indemnify the Kinder Morgan project. Uh, you know, I'm fascinated by the uh, by the moves on this chessboard. And it's moved from being a checkerboard where things were kind of predictable that people would move around in you know limited ways forward, sideways, backwards to uh, this chessboard of uh, all the pieces that are being played. First Nations and they are they in? Are they out? Is it one First Nations group says it has to be unanimous? Others are saying don't listen to them. We don't care about their view. So we've got that debate. Then we've got the politics of municipal, where we've got the mayor of Burnaby saying. No, never, not in my backyard. We've got the mayor of Vancouver weighing in saying that I'm protecting the planet from the evil Parsons, using the most dismissive term possible. Then we've got Hogan, who's clearly Oregon, who is clearly kowtowing to the Green Party, where he's got a tenuous hold on power. So we've got some people saying some things that don't make sense. I saw uh, Jagmeet weigh in on... Um, commentary. So the federal NDPs are weighing in. And then we've got the Conservative Party in Alberta. And of course, we've got the <laughs> Rachel Notley is now more aligned with the pipeline than even the Conservatives were three years ago. And uh, But of course, the Conservatives are saying, no, no, she stole the flag from us. And so we're playing, uh, we're going to try and steal the flag back as soon as we get elected. And Rachel, of course, is thinking that if she gets this pipeline in, she might have a shot at getting elected. And then we've got the King of Socks, the pajama dancer, as I call him, in Trudeau coming to the table and saying, no, 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 I've got this all under control. Watch me. And he drops this little bombshell, going back to your first question yeah. or your first point, which is where does this all, where does this indemnity for Kindred Morgan fall? And of course, a couple of people in the, the naysayers are saying that now there's another multi-billion dollar bailout. Well, there's no bailout required if we simply do what we said we were going to do. And this is where I get increasingly frustrated 
Uh, and if I may, I'll rant and say that those who are chaining themselves to the gates at the Kindred Morgan headwaters or their plant, if you will, in uh, in Burnaby, I think that instead of sanking them to court and then freeing them to go back and do it again, we should be shipping them to Baffin Island on a summer work camp program and get them out of the way. They are a nuisance and a distraction to our nation's interests. We can get them to count the polar bears because they're interested in polar bears. We can sort of double function sending them up there, right? <laughs> There's got to be a way of using a summer work program because we've been funding through uh, this Dogwood group through summer work programs. And Dogwood's gone out and using federal funds to go and hire students to protest the pipeline that we're nationally indemnifying now. So we are slapping ourselves on both sides of the head as a nation. And the real shame of all of this, Bruce, is that internationally people are looking at us as a banana republic. They'd rather be investing where returns were predictable. And you can't go to Canada and get predictable returns right now. Well, of course, Kinder Morgan is just one element of this. The larger picture, which you've talked about, other people have talked about, is exactly what you were just saying here, is who in their right mind wants to invest in Canada when we cannot guarantee the government is going to back up what it says about a project what that's passed all the environmental standards, etc. And I guess the question would be, has Mr. Trudeau figured this out too late? Well, I'm hoping it's not too late. I mean, obviously, everything's coming to a head right now. They say that the Kinder Morgan deadline is an artificial one of May 31st, but the practical deadline, and you just can't keep beating your head against the wall before it starts to hurt. We saw TransCanada spend over a billion dollars in repurposing the Energy East pipeline, an existing pipeline for 80 or 90% of its route to take and displace foreign oil, oil coming from countries that have no rule of law, concern for the rights and dignity of women and children, no real fundamental concern for the environment. And we're shipping that oil in close to a million barrels a day into the port of uh, Montreal. And we somehow say that economics are what killed the project. This is the federal level position, that economics killed the Energy East project. Well, the Energy East economics were dictated by politics. Mm -hmm. So it was politics that killed the business model, and that's why that's gone. And we've got the same challenge coming now with Keystone XL. It's raising its ugly little head. We're down to hundreds of miles of pipeline that need to be built to get that connection to an important market. And of course, all these questions arising over whether or not Trans Mountain can be built. I think it's worth taking a moment, Bruce, and reminding ourselves of what Trump did with the Dakota Access Pipeline. There was thousands of protesters camping at the headwaters of a, or the, the, some point where there was a river crossing that was pivotal for the finishing completion, if you will, of the Dakota Access Pipeline. And Trump sent in the Army Corps of Engineers and the related power that had to be put in place to physically move people out. And there was a hue and cry. And the noise got loud and the din was massive. And then it disappeared. And the pipeline got completed and the problems have all gone away. 
So what we're finding is these eco-terrorist movements, the extremists who think that they are in self-interest saving the planet, are looking for stage. They're looking for an opportunity to grandstand. And that's unfortunately the modus operandi for Elizabeth May, who has no other purpose in politics. It's the same problem for David Suzuki, who's being reviled and despised across Alberta and ultimately Western Canada for the things he's said and done to our oil and gas industries, the fossil fuel industries that he's so-called sworn to hate. But they're using these projects to raise their own brand for fundraising, for self-importance, and it's getting increasingly frustrating to the common person who said, you know, the vocal majority, the very silent majority, needs to wake up and be the vocal majority and take control of the game. And it's not a game. It's the business of life. And if we don't get control of it, we fall further and further behind, which affects lifestyle, affects the quality of life, affects health, you know, mental health, human health, emotional health yeah. in every way, shape or form. Because yeah. nothing's free. Yeah. And there's this concept of a, of a, sorry for rambling here, but there's this concept of a money tree yeah. that seems to have been created in the eyes of some of these, the eco-terrorist movements. And it's a shame. Mm. Yeah, I, you, you were mentioning, uh, you know, the economic benefits of, to Canada. And of course, nobody has talked. And my friends in New Brunswick talked to me all the time about Energy East and what it was going to mean to them. And they got, you know, they, they were just a speed bump in this whole process, too. There were so many jobs and so much wealth going to go to a place that really needed it in New Brunswick, because, of course, that's where the pipeline was going to end. And, of course, they've been completely forgotten in all of this. And, you know, again, it's, I suppose I get back to my point is Mr. Trudeau trying to now seeing what Trump did as Mr. Trudeau starting to maybe uh, sort of man up a little bit and, and, and decide to make somebody mad finally? Well, we're seeing for sure. He stepped up and I mean, he made an effort in a trip throughout through Alberta the last few days to put some major infrastructure dollars in place for for Edmonton and Calgary. So clearly saying, I haven't forgotten you. But the real message that we want to hear is that we're going to enforce the existing rule of law and regulation that's been put in place, and we're going to force our way through um, and complete this pipeline. So, yeah, there's going to be some people stepped on. There's no question. I don't doubt there's going to be, a again, the din and hue and cry, just like Dakota Access Pipeline. But I swear upon my experience in terms of thousands of deals in business world that this hue and cry will disappear within hours, not even days. It'll be hours. Yeah, they're like a bad play on Broadway. They close overnight if you put enough pressure on them. And they, they exactly, exactly, the, the Dakota one. I'm just wondering your thoughts on the Alberta government. Of course, they've made the decision that uh, they will turn off the taps if the project is, is killed. Uh, what's your thought on that as, as, as a disincentive to the B.C. government? Well, it was first attempted successfully, if you will, by Peter Lougheed many years ago, where he said to Ontario that we're going to start curtailing shipments to eastern Canada. And they said, yeah, right. And he knocked off 60,000 barrels a day. And they went, yeah, well, there's no big deal. And then at 120,000 barrels a day, going to 180, um, all of a sudden everybody came to the table. So, of course, in this case, Horgan, who doesn't really have a business brain in his body, a business bone in his body, has said, we'll just go to court and we'll keep your oil pumping. Well, it's that same court that's being used to keep the oil from 
pumping in terms of expanding the, the expanding expanding the Trans Mountain pipeline. So he's sucking and blowing in the hardest way possible on the biggest pipelines imaginable. It makes no sense. Yeah, he's they're using the Keystone pipeline uh, model during the Obama years, which is to delay, go to the courts, even though the project is yeah. approved. You keep doing this. I mean, it's 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 textbook what they're doing. Uh, I'm just wondering your thought on what what were the biggest misconceptions? Like when you're talking to people who don't necessarily understand this, what are the biggest misconceptions about the project that you want people to know? First of all, we're we, we, I'm a Canadian, so I can talk about this project as our project. But first of all, we're doubling an existing pipeline right away. Very little new infrastructure. We're increasing throughput. Number two, pipe is replacing rail. And the oil and other fuels are being shipped by rail and sometimes by tanker truck. And the safety associated with each of those is less. It's not, they're not bad. They're just not as safe, as reliable, as predictable, nor are they as low cost, nor are they creating jobs in the same way that the pipeline does. Um, so the benefits of a pipeline in terms of environment, jobs, royalties, and even people along the right-of-way, the First Nations groups that represent three-quarters of the right-of-way have signed on. Yep. They've signed on and said yes. And so for Jagmeet Singh yesterday or Hogan or May to say that Aboriginal groups haven't been consulted and they're opposed to the project. Well, you know what? Some people who are not in the area of the pipeline haven't been consulted. What that means is they don't have an economic incentive associated with negotiations. Let's call a spade a spade. The Aboriginal groups along the way are looking for jobs. They're looking for royalties. They're looking for employment. They're looking for a standard of living that they believe they're in, that they have a right to, and no one's arguing with them on that. But they've got to be along the pipeline route to participate yeah. and others are saying well we want to participate one group has said that you have to have a hundred percent of all first nations on side in order to have this pipeline approved well that makes no sense there isn't a rule of law there isn't an element of democracy that requires unanimous on anything yeah. so again so we've got extreme views in so many different ways so that's where it's misleading. You know, we do have an environmental footprint that's being understood and managed, and we are the best option. We, the pipeline for Canada, is the best option. We're not, Homer, we're not trotting over the rights and interests of the First Nations groups. We are not doing this purely at the behest of the Alberta government or the, or the, uh, or the oil industry. This is something that's good for Canada. You're listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Our guest this episode is Brett Wilson, Canadian investment banker, businessman, investor, philanthropist, hockey owner, etc. We'll get to the hockey <laughs> in just a second. But but uh, just to, to finish up on this, you were rather expressive, I would say, on social media about Al Gore's intrusions into the pipeline debate. Now, we're going to do a separate podcast on outside funding and how, how it's affecting Canada's sovereign rights. But how big an issue has it been, the interference from Gore, Tom Steyer, the Tides Foundations, et cetera, et cetera, getting themselves involved in the Canadian uh, uh, project and, and people not knowing the impact that they're having? Let's just use the simple math of looking at oil production inside the 49 states 
and inside Canada in the last decade. In Canada, we've gone from two and a half to three million barrels. Uh, Ten years ago, we're still two and a half to three million barrels. The U.S. was less than two million barrels ten years ago. Today, they're approaching nine and a half, ten million barrels. So they've taken their oil industry production up by a factor of five while ours stayed flat. And Al Gore has the audacity to treat us like the bastard child of the global energy industry, that's wrong. And to have him removed from the face of our conversation, uh, he should never be allowed in Canada. It's treasonous. The activities, the conversation make no sense. It's self-aggrandizing. And frankly, I put Suzuki in the very same camp as, uh, as Al Gore. And of course, the U.S. oil and gas industry has managed to grow by excluding the Keystone XL intrusion into their markets. They are able to take our oil at the lowest price possible, however we can get it out. And of course, we're limited in our capacity to get oil out of this country. So no, they've managed to capture global pricing and, uh, and we're in a constrained market. It makes no sense. It's just so logical that in terms of our interest that what they've done is undermine the Canadian oil and gas industry. You can see it. The economics are obvious. The activities are obvious. The people are obvious. And somehow a fraction of 1% of our population is going, yeah, but they're saving the planet. No, they're not. They're saving the U.S. oil and gas industry. Yeah. To me, it's a major concern that isn't getting enough uh, comment, which is the interference in our political system from outside money that's washing into our political system, funding these people who otherwise have no financial means to do some of the stuff that they're doing. And no one in the mainstream media really seems to care about this issue. They didn't care, but you know what we're seeing in Alberta is a rebirth of uh, of thought, <laughs> critical thinking, and it was led by the stupidity of the University of Alberta in appointing uh, honor or to give gifting, if you will, David Suzuki with an honorary doctorate. Yeah. That that act in itself has awoken the it's the slumbering giant of the oil and gas industry of the business community um and and the edmonton folks running the u of a have been very dismissive saying it's a marginalized group of frustrated professional white people in calgary i've actually seen social media to that effect it makes no sense i think three outcomes are going to occur as a result of suzuki being appointed he will get his honorary degree because the university is playing that little game that five-year-olds play you're not the boss of me i've heard that from my own children and the u of a is using this concept of academic freedom illogically this has got nothing to do with academic freedom but they're using that as their grandstanding moment number two they're going to suffer the wrath of the investment community investment community the alumni community is the word i was looking for their own alumni are in Infuriated. They're embarrassed and they're frustrated. And so they're going to cut off the pipeline of extra cash that was being used. And unfortunately, to the detriment of the students and the population that use that campus. And number three, I'm calling it here right now. I think David Turpin's going to get fired because he's the architect of this stupidity. Yeah. It, it, it's just so tone deaf. Uh, it, you know, they're trying to they're conflating free speech with giving this guy an honorary degree. I'm all for free speech. Uh, David Suzuki can go to the U of A and say whatever he wants. He can talk about his theories. That's free speech. It's for things I don't agree with. But the idea of then turning around and rewarding him for some sort of body of work, which is, is harming the industry that funds the province. Uh, to me, it just sounds tone deaf. 
it's tone deaf and it's 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 almost one step further bruce it's offensive it's a slap in the face of the entire this guy has i mean he's reprehensible in terms of his human emotions and dignity and the way he treats people but ignore all that the fact that he wants the oil and gas the fossil fuel industry to be shut down he consistently calls the oil sands the tar sands which is the most degrading term that you know the american interests and tides and others can find to call our oil sands and he hates what we represent as a nation funded and empowered by energy on a global basis we were a leader we've become a follower and we're fumbling and tripping right now because he captured the flag Finally, uh, I was hoping I could sort of brighten up the end of the conversation, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you about what happened to your hockey team. Uh, went uh, almost getting the Stanley Cup last year. Give us your uh, thumbnail synopsis of what happened. Well, there's a legendary curse associated with the President's Cup. And, you know, beginning of the season, you know, a month into season, we were in 24th place and hoping that we could get our act together. And, of course, with time, relentlessly, the club just kept getting better and better and better. You know, we had two, maybe three periods of sloppy hockey on the part of a goalie. Rebecca Rennie had a couple, got pulled several times, and so he's been made by some social media fans, uh, the armchair quarterbacks, uh, out to be the GOAT. But let's remember, this club wouldn't be where it is last year, this last season or this season, without the incredible efforts of Pekka Rennie. And, of course, an entire team wrapped around him. And the fact is, 10 years ago when I bought into the the Nashville Predators, I took abuse, good-natured, but from my own friend saying, why would you buy into a club that's not going to make it in a southern state? The, The Nashville, Smashville as they now call it, fan base has been proven as sort of a base case for the rest of the industry to aspire to. So we're no longer the unwelcome, you know, child, the black sheep of the family in terms of not being able to make it as a southern city uh, hosting hockey, but rather we are a center of excellence, center of excellence on the ice, off the ice. And I remain extraordinarily proud to be one of the many owners of the Nashville Predators. Do I wish we had a Stanley Cup ring? Uh, an associated ring, yeah, but there's always next year, as they say, as a farm boys from Saskatchewan. We always know we got next year. <laughs> That's right. Well, a little bit of puck luck there. And as Harry Sinden once told me years ago, the problem is there's 31 teams and just one Stanley Cup. That means 30 people go home upset at the end of the year. Just to give, gives them an incentive to try harder next year. Listen, it was it was a great uh, it was a great push by them. I thought they were going to win, uh, but again, puck luck. That's what happens in the playoffs. <laughs> Well, I was, uh, I'd was i set aside quite a bit of May and part of June for the rest of the playoffs, so I've got some freedom in my schedule that was unexpected. Well, thank you for finding the freedom in your schedule to talk to us again today and give us some insight into the into the, uh, the energy business a little bit and also the hockey business. As always, a friend of the show, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks. Thank you for your time, Bruce. You've been listening to The Full Cat with Bruce Dobigan. Our guest this episode, Brett Wilson, Canadian investment banker, businessman, investor, and philanthropist. Don't forget to subscribe to The Full Count and all our podcasts at iTunes and on my website, notthepublicbroadcaster.com. You can access my columns, podcasts, and my poetry on that website. I'm also appearing twice a week on Sirius XM Radio Channel 167 Canada Talks. I'm on at noon Eastern Time, Mondays and Fridays with Jeff Samet, and I'll post our conversations on my website, on Twitter, and on my Facebook page. Till the next time, this is Bruce Dobigan, and remember, the story isn't complete 
till it reaches the full count. Your fat bum ain't around.